In the typical lifespan or life cycle of a bumblebee, the queen in the spring emerges out of the ground. Um, she uh, has just gone, undergone a, a process called diapause. She emerges from the ground as it gets warmer and she finds a nice safe place to establish um, her nest. And oftentimes those are abandoned rodent holes um, or piles of hay or, um, you know, other, other uh, kind of nooks. And the queen then lays her first, um, her first couple broods, so her first daughters. As the season progresses, the sort of capacity for life of the colony expands because the workers um, or the queen's offspring are taking care of um, the queen's young. And so there are more and more bees that are being born. Um, and at the height of summer, you know, there are probably 100, 150-ish uh, individuals in a really successful bumblebee colony. That's Yan Wang, an incoming assistant professor at the University of Washington, describing the mythical, almost fairy tale-like emergence of a queen bee birthing from the ground and building her nest during the spring. Impressive. I didn't know that was how bumblebee colonies formed. It almost sounds, dare I say, regal. <laughs> so, Rachel, what else did Yan teach you about bumblebees? Well, you know, I wasn't actually the one to talk to her. It was our colleagues Anna Marie Yanni and Layla Okahata, and they're here to tell us all about it. Hello. Hello. Anna Marie Yanni is a research associate at the Allen Institute for Brain Science. Most days, she researches cell types in human and monkey brains. But when she has the time, she helps us work on projects like these. Thanks for the introduction, Rob. Yes, I have loved working on science communication pieces with Rachel, and I'm so excited to be on the podcast with Layla today. Layla Okahata is an editorial intern in the communications department at the Allen Institute. She writes science stories based on the Institute's research. She's a microbiology undergraduate at UCLA looking to get into science writing as a career. Yes, thank you, Rachel, for the introduction. I'm excited to be continuing my SciComm journey here. I'm Rachel Tampa. I'm Rob Piercy. And this is Lab Notes. So Anna Marie has been bugging me for a while about doing a podcast for us. She stumbled on this really interesting study by researcher Yan Wang and thought it would be great for our listeners. Yes, Yan Wang is a next generation leader at the Allen Institute. The NGL program is this cool advisory program that Allen Institute scientists run for early career researchers in neuroscience. And while I was looking for a podcast idea to pitch to Rachel, I found Yan's work and was excited to feature her both as a bumblebee researcher and as an early career leader in the field. In Yan's recent study, she found that isolating young bumblebees has a big impact on their development of social skills. This made me curious about what bumblebees can teach us about humans, and I thought our listeners might be curious as well. And since Layla is an intern here just for the summer, she wanted to dabble in as many storytelling formats as she could before going back to Los Angeles. I've never done a podcast before, and it's so unlike what I'm used to doing. Of course, I've done oral presentations for classes, but a podcast is a whole other beast, so I thought it would be a good experience. And as Anna Marie mentioned, Yan's research is super cool and sounds like a great topic to talk about. 
All right. So I'm excited to learn about bees, you guys. As mentioned earlier, our guest today is Yan Wang. She's an incoming assistant professor in the departments of biology and psychology at the University of Washington here in Seattle. And she loves bumblebees. I mean, loves them. They're so cute. Um, They're just so, they're so charming to watch. Um, They, just observing them move around naturally, even outside, you know, like on, on flowers, Um, is so mesmerizing. There's something that's so almost relatable or understandable about watching them. Just like humans, bumblebees are social creatures. They live in communities, interact with each other, and have their own jobs. But unlike us, they have not been widely studied. When Nian went to college, she studied biology and learned all about honeybees, ants, and termites, but surprisingly not the common bumblebee. So once it came into question what she wanted to study for her postdoc, the answer buzzed into her mind. So set the scene for me. What's the usual social environment for a bumblebee? So Yan explained to us that bumblebees usually live in groups of 100 or so individuals, and they're called a colony. And as Yan said, it all starts with the queen. In the spring, a queen bee emerges from the ground and lays her first daughters. These are the first worker bees to help grow the colony. And a fully grown colony will have one queen bee among many, many worker bees. Though these worker bees tend to take certain roles. Some are nurse bees who care for the young ones, and others are foragers who leave the nest and go collect nectar and pollen to bring back to the colony. Those are sort of the two dominant um, social phenotypes. And there are other smaller ones as well. So for example, there are guard bees, which are workers that will um, stay at the entrance of the nest and prevent um, non uh, nestmates from entering. Um, and then there are also um, uh, a, a few others within the nest that kind of make sure this whole social order um, is, is flowing. Wow. So this is really just like a whole community, huh? So how does Yan study these bees outside in nature or are there bees in her lab? In her lab at Princeton University. Yan told us that at the height of her experimenting, her team at about 700 bumblebees, six colonies, and 100 individuals in isolation. And they were all housed in this one room that was only five feet by eight feet. And get this, within that small room, all the isolated bees were housed in what looked like a giant bookcase. And so that was exciting because I felt like, you know, when I was in there, I was like, I am surrounded by all my bees. Like, this is amazing. I had all the, you could, you know, if you put your hand on top of the box that has all the the bumblebees. Um, so the bumblebees come in this um, plastic uh, container and they build their colonies in there. And then the plastic container has a secondary cardboard box, you know, so they're, they're very, very safe. They don't escape. But if you just like put the palm of your hand on top of that cardboard box, you can feel them buzzing. And that's really exciting and it's really you know almost intimate it's like you can feel like the the heartbeat of your scientific experiment um just by being in the same room with them which is not something that you have with all experiments and um, or study systems and that was that was really special that was such a touching moment between humans and bees we asked yan if she could draw any connections between these two social creatures 
I think what um, excites me about the potential connections that can be made between humans and bumblebees is just in general how social we both are you know bumblebees have to live in communities in order to survive and humans are also social creatures and i think we've seen during the covid 19 pandemic just how much social isolation can impact our behaviors our health our mental health um and you know having strong communities um, developing strong communities um, can can aid in a lot of those um, the the negative side effects of of living through a global pandemic. So, I think for me, it's it's the overall um, nature of of living in a social environment. It's no secret that as humans, being isolated from our social environment during the pandemic wasn't great. But that seemed to be especially true for kids. If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that Zoom school doesn't cut it. And kids will do anything to connect again, regardless of how socially awkward they may have become over the span of quarantine. Turns out it's the same for bumblebee kids. Wait, really? Okay, maybe not exactly the same, but Yan and her team found that when young bumblebees are isolated from their colony, they do become a little socially awkward. It all starts in the first nine days of a young bee's life. Those first nine days of life are really, really important um, because we see a lot of refinement in the nervous systems. It seems that the mature form of the adult brain doesn't emerge until day nine or day 10. And during those nine days, since they primarily stay within the nest, what the environment really is, is the social environment. For context, bumblebees usually live from one month to a year. So it's like their childhood and teenage years are all crammed into their early days. Yan and her team isolated young bees from their social environment right before this critical developmental period. And during that time, the bees are cooped up alone with no social cues. So no Zoom school or anything like that for the bees. They just got no social interaction at all. That's right. And after the nine days, Yan would take an isolated bee, place it in a petri dish with another isolated bee, and test their social skills. And these two individuals would spend way more time, you know, right next to each other <laughs> um, or facing each other, you know, head to head um, and even antenating on each other. And antenating is a, is a, a behavior in bees that... Um, is really, really important for social communication because they use their antenna to um, identify each other and to kind of um, transfer uh, or communicate chemically. Um, so it's almost like a handshake, you know, or, or that type of greeting um, in a way, but with an additional um, chemical access to it. Um, and so we saw that these isolated bees spent a lot more time antenating on each other as though they were you know, trying to figure out who, um, who the conspecific was or, or gain a foothold on, on the social situation. So that was the main kind of surprise that we found in terms of behaviors is that these isolated bees actually became much more affiliative um, and they spent way more time um, near each other, next to each other, way less time just moving around, um, you know, locomoting, um, and way more time um, 
uh, you know, almost uh, quote unquote sniffing each other, if you will. Sounds like my dog. Sounds like me. Well, I don't know about sniffing, but I recently had COVID and after 10 days of isolation, I could not wait to hug another human being. This hypersocial behavior from the isolated bees was actually a surprise to Yan and her team because in other social animals like rodents or primates, social isolation in early life leads to increased aggression later in life. Wait, so are bees being less aggressive a problem? I had that question too. So I asked Yan if these friendly behaviors, or affiliative behaviors as scientists would call it, are detrimental to the bee or just signs they grew up differently. It's true that they, um, they're engaging more in this behavior that we traditionally think of as an affiliative behavior. But I think the subtlety here is that maybe it's not the right thing to do. You know, so if you're at a cocktail party or if you're at a meeting or a conference or something, you meet your neighbor, you don't shake their hand for like 15 minutes, right? You're like, you're not shaking their hand the entire time you're having a conversation with them, right? You shake their hand and kind of move on. Ah, so even though socially awkward bees might seem cute to us, it's really not great for them. Right. This could cause problems for them with more socially aware bees. As a neuroscience researcher, I was really curious how social isolation impacted the bumblebee brain. Like, what does a socially isolated bee brain look like? And how does it compare to a normal bee brain? Yan said that she and her team expected the brain regions responsible for social behaviors to shrink in the isolated bees. But what she actually saw was surprising. The brains of isolated bees weren't all that different from socialized bees, but they were really different from each other. In other words, brains varied from isolated bee to isolated bee. Right. And she described this in terms of investment, like the brain will invest high or low energy into growing certain brain regions. And for her experiment, she compared the isolated bees to bees who were either raised in small groups of four or in a full colony for those nine critical days of development. We didn't see huge changes between colony reared bees, um, group reared bees, or isolation reared bees. Instead, what we saw is a, a huge um, variance in the isolation reared bees. So in the colony reared bees and the group reared bees, their brains really resemble each other's brains um, in terms of investment in different brain area volumes. But for the isolated bees, it's almost as if some constraint had been removed. And so you see some animals that have, you know, really low investment in certain areas and other isolated animals that have really high investment in those areas. To summarize, the isolated bee brains develop in a bizarre way. It seems like isolation destabilizes the regular developmental trajectory of the brain, causing it to say, maybe we should invest more in this area or this area. I don't know. What struck me about this finding was that group rear bees and colony rear bees are protected from a similar fate. Their brain region sizes don't vary so much from bee to bee, and it seems like the opportunity to socialize early in life is what is protecting them. So you can think about it as like rails uh, or the safety bumpers when you go bowling, that they kind of ensure that, okay, even if you're really bad at bowling like I am, um, it's going to go down that it's going to go down your lane, right? <laughs> it might not hit anything, but it's going to go down your lane. And without any social experience in early life, it's as though those bumpers were completely lifted. And and now maybe you you are um, 
executing the act of moving a bowling ball um, from where you're standing down to the other end of the alley, but maybe you're throwing it all over the place, you know, so it goes to a different lane to your right or the left. And so it seems that the social environment has this like buffering um, effect on the development of the nervous system that kind of guides it to um, to a, a certain stable point and without social experience in early life, that's completely removed. And so we see this huge variance, um, huge variability in neuropo investment in all the major brain areas that we looked at in the isolated animals. I don't know about you, Layla, but I can think of a lot of times in my life when socialization taught me something important. Like when I was in fourth grade and I learned that picking flowers on the soccer field instead of watching the ball wasn't going to help my teammates very much. Don't worry, you're not alone. I would physically avoid the ball, so I was just as or even more useless to my team. (laughs) (laughs) But along with brain sizes, Yan's team also looked at the transcriptomes of each group. The transcriptome shows which genes are switched on in the brain, and Yan noticed a lack of large differences between the transcriptomes of colony reared bees and group reared bees. It was only the isolated bees that had a difference in activated genes. So despite being only in contact with three other bees, group reared bees developed similarly to colony reared bees. What that suggested to us is that even if you receive a limited amount of social experience, such as the group reared bees, that was enough to maintain, you know, keep your brain on that the typical trajectory of development from both a um, neurodevelopment side as well as this transcriptomic side. And that's really exciting, um, especially when you think about how lower levels of um, social, social interactions um, are typical in any social animal, right? So even though we're social animals, it's not like every single day we're communing with every single human in New York City, right? That's not true at all, right? And and that's probably something that's similar to bumblebees. It's not like when you live in a colony, you interact with every single individual every single day and you say, hi, how's it going, right? Um, so, so this, um, so it was interesting to see almost as a, you know, proof of principle that these small groups were sufficient to maintain the typical um, uh, neurotranscriptomic landscape. So even a little socialization is good. And I'm sure we can all relate that during quarantine, even the smallest of interactions were helpful. You know, I was doing this in in the middle of the pandemic, you know, when we were on low occupancy and everything, and everybody was experiencing an extremely different um social environment than than usual and so i i don't want to draw too many um connections with with human experiences but i think you know it it shows that limited social experiences are sufficient to kind of protect um the your brain's transcriptome from um the changes that we saw in the isolated animals It is tempting to relate the bumblebee experience to the human experience. We are both social creatures after all. But of course, at the end of the day, we are completely different species. Yan mentioned she was hesitant to relate their experience to ours too much. I think my hesitancy comes from the fact that human social experience is modulated by so much more than just behavior, right? Or or just um, kind of the the drive to acquire food or or reproduce or protect yourself from predators or the elements. Leila, how do we even summarize how humans are different than bees? Definitely too many differences to count. Right? 
And I don't want to say that the human social experience is necessarily better than bees, but it is different. We go to school, we vote in elections, and we fall in love. Plus, our brains are really different than bee brains, obviously. Before learning about Yan's work, I was deathly afraid of bees. Their buzzing would spook me, I was terrified of getting stung, and if they landed near on me, I was done for. But as someone with a big fear of bees, this research was really eye-opening for me. It made me think, huh, bees are actually really cute. And maybe I had the wrong perception of them all along. My hope and wish for listeners is that they kind of get that same internal, like, squee of how cute bumblebees are when they first encounter them. So I guess I wish they knew just how, um, how perfectly tuned to social living these animals are um, in, in every part of their biology. Bees are gentler critters than we may expect. Yan will be resuming her bee studies at the University of Washington this fall she will continue to share her fascination with these tiny creatures' vast nervous system. I'm Anna-Marie Yanni. I'm Leila Okahara. For more Lab Notes episodes and science research news, visit our website, allaninstitute.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>